I'm mad. Um, and uh, some of you will think that I need to go back to bed with some aspirin and a cool drink and uh, a cold towel even and just go back on my meds and calm down. Um, but when we, when we get into it, it'll start to make some sense. So we're, we're starting this series called Mosaic. My assignment today is really just to lay a foundation for the next five weeks that are to follow. So today is about uh, establishing what we're talking about. I'm going to raise three key things, two of those things that are just important for that background and one thing that we're going to focus on for five weeks, all right? Um, so we're going to get there in a second. But before I do, what, in order to unpack this, I want you to, to understand that the way God works so often in creation, so often in the world in which we live, is that he loves to surprise us with the unsurprising. Who's ever been surprised by something they thought was unsurprising? Anybody? You're going to have to talk to me today. Anybody? You've never, no, some of you have never been surprised by something you thought was just plain. Everyone's been surprised by something they thought they were playing. You ever just seen a fish where you're swimming along like a flathead fish and you're going snorkeling and you think it's sand and all of a sudden it moves and you're like, oh my goodness, that was closer than I thought. Because it's just disguised, it's just hidden and then all of a sudden it moves and you're like, whoa, where the heck did that come from? Um, we had, we had a, a birthday lunch earlier this year for a friend and it was a fancy lunch. Um, it was a big birthday and it was, you might even say it was a fancy lunch, like it was... <laughs> It was a, a nice, nice lunch. One of those lunches where you eat stuff that you never would eat. One of those lunches where someone puts something on a plate and your initial instinct is gross. <laughs> and where's the rest of it? <laughs> like, firstly, you've given me hardly any food and that sounds disgusting. <laughs> and so you go to, you think, well, it's at a fancy place, so I better just try it, and so that you bite into it, and you're just blown away. You're like, what the heck? How the heck did that do that to my mouth? <laughs> Anyone ever done that before? So we went to this fancy lunch, and it was sensational. It was all these different foods came out that I'd never tried before, and I could never have imagined would have been good. And then it came time for dessert, and so I was really excited, because I'm a sweet tooth. I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And then they brought out a boiled egg. I was like, okay, <laughs> you've just had all this crazy food and here's an egg. And there was the egg, there was the, in the egg cup and there was a spoon and they just put it in front of us and they said, a boiled egg. And I was like, this is lame. <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe it's a palate cleanser, but I've never heard of a palate cleansing egg before. And I was like, oh, well, it's protein, might as well just eat it. So we just got that down. <laughs> And uh, it was fascinating because there was this egg with the top like delicately cut off and it looked like an egg. It fair income looked like an egg. You could see the egg wire and then you could kind of see the yolk just underneath it. And so I was like, oh, I'll just dig in and have a go. And then the moment I put my spoon in, I was like, oh, that's not an egg. And then took it out and ate it. I kid you not, it was, it was like the best lemon meringue pie you've ever eaten without the pie. Just in a shell in an eggshell. It was this incredible, like, mouth-blowing, <laughs> mind-blowing dessert, and it, I just thought it was an egg, and all of us were shocked. All of us around the table going, oh my goodness, how the heck did they do that? We were completely blown away. And I think it's the true test of an artist, of an artisan, is this capacity to bring um, just this 
incredible like beauty out of the ordinary. Like to actually to turn something that you thought was plain into something that is just extraordinary. Uh, and what I've found fascinating as I've been thinking about this passage and I was thinking about that story, I was thinking about, that's what God does. Like, he is the creator. He is the artisan. The reason human beings can do that is because we are made in the image of the ultimate artisan. And just look at nature. Like, look at creation. How often do you see something and you think it's one thing and then it moves and you're just like, whoa, whoa. I did not see that coming. You know, you look at, again, like a fish, that's something else. Coral, which you think is a rock, which turns out to be an animal, or a bird, which you think is a stick, which turns out to be a bird. Like, nature is full of these incredible creatures that are disguised and camouflaged and hidden, and you think they're one thing, but they're actually something completely different. And this, I reckon God loves it. I think it's something about God, like a flower. We've got friends over and they're caught on the sour, you know, the sour suck flowers. You just think they're a weed. You pick them up and you're like, oh my goodness. It's like a sour delight in my mouth. God loves, I think God loves it. I think he loves this idea that when he creates that he actually, he hides beauty. He hides beauty. And then he says, go and find it. And it's not because he likes to tease us. It's because he loves to engage us in his creation. He loves to engage us. Like a father, like at Easter when you get to hide eggs, and there's, some, there's a joy in kids searching for stuff, isn't there? There's this incredible joy of, you're so close, keep going. Oh, have you looked there? Have, and then they find you like, yes, now let's go to find the next one. Like there's... God loves it when we are searching and when we're seeking because that's when we, are, we, we, we find him. And he's actually pursuing us, longing to be found because he's the one seeking us and drawing us to himself. And so he does it in nature, but the other thing is that he actually does this in his word as well. And when we read scripture, we need to understand so often we read scripture, we read a story, and we just go like, and we just read over it. And we miss the depth, we miss the power, we miss the meaning because we're not prepared to sit with it, we're not prepared to dive deep, we're like, it's just a boiled egg, when actually God's saying, no, 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 there's a meringue in there. If you're prepared just to sit with it, if you're prepared to meditate on it, if you're prepared to dive into it, you're going to find something so sweet, so amazing, so rich, so powerful, it's going to change your life. And friends, when we come to this text that I'm about to read, that we're about to spend six weeks on, some of you are going to think it's a boiled egg. <laughs> some of you are going to sit there and you're going to go, there's nothing in that, Dave. This is one of those texts. This is like a kid going to its mum and saying, mum, I can count to 100. One, two, skip a few, 99, 100. This is the text that everyone goes, no, I don't need to read that. I don't need to read that. Oh, I'll just skip over that. I'll just skip over that and I'll read that bit. I'll read the fun bit. There's nothing in this for me. So we're going to spend six weeks on it. <laughs> Because there's so much in it. So open your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 1. The first verse. And we are going to read from chapter 1, verse 1 through 16. And some of you are going to laugh at the names and think that I'm drunk for choosing this for six weeks. But it's not a boiled egg. 
It's beautiful. If you want to stand for the reading of God's Word, you're welcome to do that. And let's get into it. Chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was father to Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you've got a pen, underline Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. If you've got a pen, underline Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. If you want to underline Ruth, underline Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. Should we keep reading, friends? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You can underline Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. How are we going? Isn't it awesome? After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of, this is where it gets hard, Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Everyone say Zerubbabel. It's just a fun name to say. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud, Abahud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, more, kids, more people should name their kids Zadok, <laughs> Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, you can underline Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You may be seated. It looks like a boiled egg, doesn't it? It looks like a boiled egg, but it's not. There is so much gold in this, and so that's what we're going to have a look at today. Um, the thing we need to understand about Scripture, and when we dive into this, is not a word is wasted. Everything in Scripture has meaning and purpose and usefulness for, for training and learning and growing. God put it in there for a reason, right? This is in here for a reason. And in order to understand that, and in order to understand this passage and why this passage is important, I need, a, I need you first to understand a couple of things about the nature of Scripture. So can I take you to Bible college just for like five, ten minutes? Is that okay? Can we go there? You see, the Bible is, uh, is written, it's, it's not written as a laser beam from God. Barring the Ten Commandments, which came, you know, from God on the stone, every other word in Scripture is written through the hands of men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What that means is that God actually 
laid something on someone's heart. He inspired a human being and he said, you need to write down what you have seen and heard. So they've written things like poems, they've written prayers, there's narrative, there's just genuine history, recounting events that have happened. Scripture's full of it. So it's the inspired word of God. God has, he said, you need to write. But we need to understand that it is written through the hands of men. Therefore, each book, each letter, everything that was written was inspired for a particular purpose in a particular culture for a particular people group. Now, we know that the Word of God is transcendent, right? So what God was saying to a two, people 2,000 years ago still speaks and has power and life to speak to us today. It is the authoritative inspired Word of God. Amen? We know that. But if all we do is just read the message, but we don't understand the motive of the author, we actually lose something of the power that is actually in the message. When we understand why the author was inspired to write, who they were writing to, and what context they were writing to, that's when the Word of God takes on this incredible, transcendent power that just speaks into our everyday situation and into our lives. The problem with the West is we're so caught up in ourselves and what's going on in our lives that very rarely do we take the time to get our cultural shoes off, jump into the context that it was written in and seek to understand what God was saying and why. Not us. We are going to dive into this. And we need to understand that this is written for a particular people group for a particular purpose. Let me make it a little bit more plain for you. Take the Gospels, for example, right? We've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yeah? Now, people talk about the fact that those are four, you know, they're same-same but different. And some people think that's a bad thing. They're like, oh, they're contradictory. No, they're not. They're different people inspired to write the recount and the story of Jesus to a for a different reason, yeah? They actually have a motive that's different from each other. Mark, for example, is written by John Mark. He spent his life walking around with the apostle Peter. He's recording Peter's events, but he's, he's speaking to a Gentile audience. He's writing to people who aren't Jewish. And so he's trying to get the narrative of Jesus into him, the drama of Jesus' life, and he's trying to get them to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke isn't a Jew. He's a Gentile, and he's a historian, and he's a, he's a physician, right? And Luke hung around with Paul. And so Luke has done a heap of research. He's also writing to a Gentile audience. And he's trying to get them to, to learn about um, the power of Jesus and, and the fact that he is the, the son of God. And then you see John, and John's like completely different again. He's writing with all these philosophical undertones that are speaking to the Greco-Roman culture. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Like, and so for those people, they're, they're looking at that, and they're going, whoa, this is so different to these other Gospels. That's because he's writing with a different purpose in mind. Are you with me? Matthew is fascinating because Matthew is specifically writing to a Jewish audience, right? And because he's writing to a Jewish audience, 
with this goal of unpacking the kingdom nature of Christ. He has to speak their language. He has to speak in a way that's culturally relevant to them. And we need to understand that the Jews were the people of the promise. The Jews were the descendants of Abraham. The Jews were the people who have this promise that King David's throne will, will reign forevermore. They know that a Messiah is coming. They're longing for a Messiah who will take David's throne and they are awaiting for that person to come. So Matthew is writing that they would know that Jesus is that Messiah for whom they are waiting. And so in order to do that, he goes about it the most Jewish way you could possibly imagine that instantly grabs and captivates them because they know that the Messiah would be a Jew, so would come out of Abraham and would be in the line of David. So he begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What he's saying is, this is the guy you've been looking for. He ticks your boxes. And he goes about this beautiful genealogy, unpacking the history of Israel, where they've got this great pride in their kings and great pride in their nation and the promise that God has given to Abraham that they would be this great nation. And so it straight away is speaking their language and engaging. But I want you to see one key thing. It starts, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew uses this this word that straight away, if you're a Jew, is like, boom. And the word in Greek is genesis. Guess what that means for us? Genesis. Genesis. He's saying, this is the genesis of your Messiah. Straight away, a Jewish reader, and this is what we should do too, straight away, Matthew's doing something significant. Straight away, what Matthew is doing is he is taking his readers and saying, hey, 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 remember Genesis. Remember Genesis. Remember your story. It doesn't begin with Abraham. Your story begins with Adam. Your story begins when God created, when God started a new thing. And what he's saying is the Jews had this idea that the Messiah would be this new, powerful, robust king who would come and overthrow the nations like David, you know, slaying the Goliaths of the day, reestablishing the nation. He's going, no, 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 it's going to look different. You think it's a boiled egg. You think it's going to look like this. It's something different. This is, it's going to be a new genesis. Theologians call it an Adamic typology. Everyone say Adamic typology. Isn't it a fun word? And what it's basically saying is that Jesus is going to be the new Adam. It's the language that Paul picks up in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Read your Bibles. This whole idea that Jesus, the Messiah, the one they're waiting for, is more than just a big, powerful king He is a life giver. He is where Adam brought sin and destruction. Jesus, the Messiah they're waiting for, will bring life and life to the full. He's saying he's different from what you think. He's more than what you think he's going to be. He is a life giver. He is a Genesis 
Messiah. He is the Messiah who will change your life and bring life and speak life and bring that in and through and out of you. It's more than a king. It's more than a warrior. It's greater than that. And Jesus is that guy. He's a genesis. He's a life giver. He's the creator. It's powerful stuff, friends, what he's doing, what he's saying about Jesus. He's, he's taking the Jewish traditions. He's taking everything that they thought they knew, and he's starting to twist them. And he's saying, let me take you back to Genesis. And that's the first thing that we need to have as a bedrock when we come to this passage, right? Second thing, if you jump to the end of it, when we go to verse um, 17, it says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Do I have any numbers people in the room today? Any numbers people? Some of you are numbers people. Some of you love numbers so much, you like to take numbers out and replace numbers with letters just so you can have a joy in finding the number. You see find X and you're like, oh, goody. Find X, quick, Pythagoras theorem, right? And you start doing all that sort of stuff and it just blows up. Others of us, when we see find X, we just circle it and say, here it is. (laughs) I found it. Some of you love numbers. Some of you love numbers. A lot of us don't. Here's the thing. The Jewish people love numbers. Like numerology for them is huge. It's super significant. So much so that their alphabet, each letter, has a numeric value assigned to it. Like numerology in Hebrew culture is massive. We don't get it. We read 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Oh, that's nice and neat. And then we just keep reading. But there's a reason to it. And then as you read this genealogy and you start to study it, you realize that actually Matthew has deliberately skipped generations. He's actually not put everyone's name in there. Sometimes he's just gone the grandfather to the grandson. Why? So that he can have 14 generations. What's with 14? Some of us are like, I don't care. It's a boiled egg, Dave. What does it matter? It's a palate cleanser. It's not important. Yes, it is. If it wasn't important and we were supposed to start in verse 18, Matthew would have started in verse 18. But he didn't. He started in verse 1 and then he put that in in verse 17 as a way of saying, hello, there's a message here that you need to grab. If Jesus is the new Genesis, this Messiah is more than a king but a life giver, he's more than what you thought he was, hey, guess what? It's also 14, 14, 14. What's he saying? Part of the key of this whole numerology thing, and I'm not going to go into it that much because quite frankly, I don't know enough about it. But what I do know is that in terms of numbers, there's a couple of really significant. Six is the number of man, right? Six is the number of human striving. Six is the number of work and failure. Seven is the number of fulfillment, the number of completion, the number of perfection, the number of rest. Where does that come from? Genesis. Hang on, didn't Matthew talk about Genesis at the beginning? (gasps) Could he be linking the two together, friends? 
Could there be something in this? Just maybe this 14 has something to do with the multiples of seven. They're perfect multiples of seven. When you see three lots of 14, it's six multiples of seven. It's this whole idea that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all of man's striving. This Messiah that you're longing for is more than a king who's going to just overthrow Rome. He is the giver of life and he is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the true fulfillment of the promise. All of the striving, all of the work, all of the failure, the exile. You know, you worked and worked and you had this great king, but you've forgotten about his failures. And then that led to exile. And then we had all this, but look who's coming now. A Messiah who's going to bring about the fulfillment of all that God has done. And then he goes one step further, and 14 is actually the numeric value of David's name. So it's like a double whammy. It's like he's going, this is the guy. And for a Jewish reader, they've just got their, li- their list out. And they're like, tick, tick, tick. He's making a case that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for, but he is greater than anything they could ever have imagined. It's pretty cool. But then he does something weird odd and remarkable because in the midst of these two powerful verses 1 and 17 he has the audacity and the gall to mention five women's names women were not included in Jewish genealogies Gentiles were not included in Jewish genealogies. Go and read them. Even in the book of Ruth, when they have her genealogy at the end to David, her name's not mentioned. Naomi's name's not mentioned. It's just the fellas. What is Matthew doing? And for a Jew reading this, they're like, oh, this whole Genesis idea, this life-giving God, oh, the completion of the promise? Wow. And he's like, what? Tamar? She slept with her father-in-law? What? Like, she, she brings about the, um, just, she brings to memory this disgraceful part in one of their heroes' history. And then you have Rahab. She was a prostitute. Are you saying that God would bring about victory through the line of a prostitute? What? Ruth, she was a Moabite and a widow Matthew, you're an idiot. Why would you include these women? You're wrecking a great genealogy. (laughs) You're ruining it. You know, you're spoiling what was spectacular, this, this beautiful Genesis and 14 generations. Matthew, you're killing it. And then he's like, you should have all the great names there and we'd all be cheering. Yeah, that's our Messiah. And instead you're putting rotten women in there. Uriah, Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba. She's the one who David slept with when he should have been at war. (laughs) Mary, at the end, she's not even married. What the heck? That's what we're going to spend five weeks talking about, folks. Why are these women in here? And any person who has read this 
with any Jewish sort of eye on them, straight away, it's like, what are you doing? Why are these women in here? And if you're going to put a woman in, at least make her a Jew. And if you're going to put a Jewish woman in, at least make her one of our heroes. But you haven't. You put broken, busted, widowed, wretches in the line of a Messiah who brings new life and fulfills the promises of God. Why? Friends, we get to spend five weeks unpacking this. I'm really excited about it. (laughs) And I had a whole lot more to say, but it's 11.30. So do you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually just going to pray. And I'm going to leave the suspense hanging. (laughs) And I'm going to invite you to go and read these 17 verses, knowing that our Messiah is the life giver. He is the promise fulfiller. But somehow in the midst of it all, all, God is saying, it's not what you think. You want your king to be the Goliath-killing hero. You want him to come with his sword and slay Rome. Just maybe, maybe the life and the promise fulfillment is going to come through brokenness, through sacrifice and humility. Maybe that's how God brings about his perfect plan. Maybe he brings beauty out of brokenness. Maybe, just maybe, his manifesto of history is a mosaic. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I love this word and I thank you for it. And I thank you for Matthew, this genius apostle who knew what it was like to be broken, who knew what it was like to be hated, who knew what it was like to be separate, and he found life in Christ, and he wants the world to know it. And so, God, I pray that as we sit here for the next five weeks, looking at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, that you would open our eyes to the mosaic of your grace. You would open our eyes to the beauty and the splendor of the way in which you fulfill your perfect plan in the world, that it is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, by the blood that was shed on an old rugged, old rugged cross on a hill outside the gates of Jerusalem. We love you, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.